Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle. Rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio. I am thrilled that you could all join us. Our guest today is someone who is not new to Go Green Radio. We had her on when she released a book that I dearly love, Uprisings of the Earth. Um, Her name is Osprey Oriel Lake. Beautiful name and beautiful soul. And I'm so glad to have her on today. She is the founder and co-director of the International Women's Earth and Climate Initiative. And just this week, they have wrapped up an historic event to bring 100 women from 35 or more countries uh, to New York together in a summit to take bold action on climate change and to craft a women's climate action agenda. And I'm thrilled to have her on to talk about what happened there. I I would have loved to have been there myself, uh, but we're going to hear all about it. Welcome back to Go Green Radio, Osprey. I'm so glad that you could join us. Oh, I'm so glad to be here, Jill. Thank you for having me on your show again. Well, it's a pleasure, always a pleasure. I'd like to start, before we talk about the summit, I'd like for you to talk about your organization because I think uh, you know, just laying that foundation for our listeners is so important. So talk to us about the International Women's Earth and Climate Initiative and give us some idea of when and maybe even more importantly, why you founded that organization. Yeah, um, the... The original um, organization actually is the Women's Earth and Climate Caucus, and I've been, I founded that uh, about four and a half years ago now when I began to really see this nexus of power of uh, women engaged in environmental issues and climate change and really seeing that this was a potent place, uh, an important place for women to be working. And then a few years into that project, I started having a vision of bringing women from all over the world together for um, this very high-level conversation on climate change. And I met a woman named Sally Ranney, whose organization is Aero Global Alliance in Colorado, and we partnered up. And I said, you know, I have this vision. I really want to share this with you of bringing all these women leaders together. And she, you know, was willing to take the risk with me. And so together we formed um, the International Women's Earth and Climate Initiative, which is really a project of both our organizations. And I think one of the big, important, untold stories of climate change actually has to do with women's leadership. And we know, um, you know, I've done a lot of research on women's role in sustainability, learning of remarkable projects and campaigns that women are doing. And so this is where this vision really came from, is seeing what if we had really a holistic uh, summit on bringing together business women, scientists, policymakers, indigenous and grassroots leaders, all coming from different entry points, but also very unified in a common cause. And I think it's important here to really see the... Um, uh, how how women are central stakeholders. Um, and I like to go through these numbers a little bit with you because sure. um, I think that it's important for people to understand, you know, it's more than sort of women getting together and women having leadership. There's actually some very important criteria, as an example, between 60 and 80% of all household food production in developing countries is done by women. So we know agriculture is a very key issue in climate change solutions. And when we're talking about having a low carbon footprint um, and uh, agriculture, especially as we look 
look to agroecology and small organic farms. We're really looking at women when we're talking about food security and food sovereignty. This, women are key. So women are responsible for food production and the collection of water and fuel wood, especially in developing country, which makes them particularly aware of changing weather patterns that are altering growing seasons, decreasing crop yields, and lowering water levels. So the knowledge that these women have is so essential to adaptation and mitigation strategies. Mm-hmm. Um, we're also looking at the fact that women in North America determine about 80% of all consumer purchases. You know, so how do we use that to mobilize and significantly reduce um, carbon emissions through purchasing choices, including um, we're looking at campaigns to end uh, the use of fossil fuels. Mm-hmm. Um, and we know that um, whether you look to developed or developing world, when you empower women through jobs and education, some really important things happen in terms of economies improving, population stabilizing, and health improvements to communities. And all of these are key to the foundation of sustainability solutions. And also we know studies in uh, the developed world show that women take climate change more seriously and understand it as a danger in higher numbers than men. And therefore, they're more likely to take action on that. So I could go on and on about this, but there's one other point I want to make about women that I think is really important um, that uh, um, I, I think we're looking at as, as we look to women's leadership is not only um, as women's decision-making having very important implications for climate change. A study of 130 countries show that countries with higher female parliamentary representation are more prone to ratify international environmental treaties. But there's this component that I think really came out in the summit and I've been observing over the years and I think is also true in many areas of women's leadership is we have something to add to the climate dialogue that we shouldn't shy away from, which is our emotional and spiritual intelligence. Mm-hmm. And I remember um, uh, being at a talk with Joanna Macy some years ago, who's you know a philosopher, an environmentalist, um, a wonderful teacher, and she tells the story how she had been confronted several years ago um, by uh, uh, other leaders who said, you know, women get too emotional about environmental issues and that this really interferes with their work. And, and I just <laughs> loved her response because she said, you know, if we can't get emotional about destroying the planet, what are we supposed to get emotional about? <laughs> no kidding. And, and I just, I love that. And, um, you know, just one other quick story is that um, uh, our organization, the Women's Earth and Climate Caucus, hosted a delegation of women activists who participated in the largest climate rally in the U.S. earlier this year, protesting protesting the Keystone XL pipeline. Mm -hmm. And our campaign was called the Women of the Land Speak, and the delegation was comprised of First Nation women from Canada who are living on the front lines of the tar sands and -hmm. farmers and ranchers living along the pipeline route in the U.S., and uh, the Women's Earth and Climate Caucus held two after events after the rally, including one with the Environmental Protection Agency to express the concerns of the women. Um, and in addition to the powerful presentation that these women delivered, you know, because they're experts in their field about the science, the legal issues, and the devastation of their people and land due to the tar sands and its infrastructure, I think that stood out the most really came about during some question and answer periods when a young woman asked in the audience asked about how these impacted women were dealing with their grief. It was just sort of an unusual oh. question in the middle of this political conversation. But it was very interesting because the room was silent as the First Nations women expressed how they had no time to grieve because they had to fight for their communities and land. And that stopping to grieve would mean more time was taken away from their fight for their communities and how hard that was because of the loss of loved ones due to increasing 
high cancer rates and the masses destruction of their lands and the way of life. And of course, it's really hard to talk about grief without grieving. And the mm-hmm. women just started to weep. And it was amazing because this is a room of like 300 people, all different um, uh, kinds of leaders from many sectors. And the whole room sort of just stood up and had this moment of grief. It was very unusual in this kind of political context. And afterwards, it really touched me because so many people came up to me and said this was the most important meeting they'd ever been at and how much it inspired them to do more because they actually were touched in their heart. Mm-hmm. And I think this is just something that, um, y- you know, it's not something we usually bring to the political table and in these areas of of policy and on-the-ground solutions um, programs, but I think it's something that we also need to invite into the conversation. Well, because it's a part of our humanity, it's not a weakness, it's a strength, um, because that, that's something that motivates us to be better, to do better, um, and I couldn't agree with you more. I think there is a place for it. Um, You know, on your website, it says that your organization supports a rights-based solutions approach. And just so that our listeners understand your guiding principles, I'd like for you to spend some time talking about um, how your rights-based solutions approach um, drives the work that you do, specifically when you talk about the rights of women, the rights of indigenous peoples, the rights of nature, and the rights of future generations. Help us understand how that drives, how those guiding principles drive your unique approach. Yeah, that that's something that um, came early on when I started the Women's Earth and Climate Caucus is that I was really searching for a way to express the direction that our organization was going to go and also our um, really our approach to culture and policy, really, and to solutions. And um, actually, in the um, summit we just held, we formed a declaration statement and, as you mentioned earlier, a women's climate action agenda. And we really built them upon these core concepts that you mentioned of our guiding principle, which are rights of women, rights of indigenous peoples, rights of nature, and rights of future generations. And I think these are the voices that have been silenced, and these are the voices that need to be lifted up at this critical time. And I think a rights-based approach is really the most powerful response to the climate crisis that will provide a deeper analysis, leading to transformative changes both in the short-term and long-term solutions so that we can really create a, a what I call a just, or many people call a just transition to a new clean energy economy. And uh, we need to, because it also means we need to address our worldviews and values that led to the climate crisis and a lot of these environmental problems in the first place. And so when you're talking about women's rights, indigenous rights, rights of nature, rights of future generations, we're talking about really shifting our governance systems, our worldviews. And the rights-based approach to me also is indicating that we're wanting legal changes. Um, It's not simply stating that, you know, these are our philosophical viewpoints um, or an agenda. It's also saying, you know, we want this to take place in our governance structures. And I think given the urgency of the climate crisis, we need policy to change at a, a very deep level. And so these are foundational rights that we think will lead to the kinds of solutions we need that are very deep at a systemic level. So the rights piece has to do with a a legal format for those solutions. Mm -hmm. Tell us about some of the people that you work with. Who's on your core team uh, and and what constituencies do they represent? Well, um, 
in terms of our core team, uh, we are very, very, very honored. There's, of course, my um, the co-founder of the um, International Women's Earth and Climate Initiative with me, which is Sally Ranney, um, who um, has done work in the environmental field for over 40 years um, on, you know, everything from saving uh, wetlands to rivers. Um, she's also uh, the president of the American Renewable Energy Day um, conference, which goes on in Colorado once a year. And so um, she's just been a real fighter for the environment for many years. We were very fortunate to have with us on our team Claire Greensfelder, who um, has came in to do policy with us. And um, she also works um, outreach consulting for Conversations with the Earth. Um, which is um, dealing a lot with indigenous peoples. Mm-hmm. And uh, she's just a wonderful policy and organizational consultant for us and um, someone who's also been in the field for many, many, many years. Um, uh, uh, Wyola Garden was our operations manager, um, just someone who's dedicated to the earth and someone who gets up at you know, 6 in the morning and works till midnight. I mean, the, the people that we had on our team was phenomenal. Uh, Celia Alario was our communications director who's worked on campaigns for many, many years, from uh, from Amazon Watch to Greenpeace, just in a lot of really great work, which, of course, you know, if it doesn't happen in the media, then, you know, we're not doing our job. And she did a, a marvelous, marvelous job uh, of doing work there. And so a whole host of people came together to do this. And, of course, we had an international steering committee and advisory council that worked with us for about a year on the project mm-hmm. as well. And um, I want to talk about them in just a little bit. Yes. Um, We are going to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, folks, we're going to dive right into the summit that Osprey and her organization just held in New York, and we're going to talk about some of the ideas and insights that were shared there, and I know that you're going to love hearing about this. So don't go away, folks. There's much more Go Green Radio right after this. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. All round the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson in The Sea Around Us said, All at last, return to the sea. To Oceanus, the ocean river, like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. 
You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you could join us. And if you're just tuning in, our guest today is Osprey Oriel Lake. She is the co-founder and co-director of the International Women's Earth and Climate Initiative. And they just held their first summit this week in New York City. Um, I would love for you to talk to us about what happened the opening night of the summit because I have this vision in my head of what that must have been like when you had Drs. Jane Goodall and Vandana Shiva Give a talk about the big picture. I would love for you to share some of their insights with our listeners. Absolutely. Well, you can imagine, I mean, it was just a stellar event. I mean, to have, for me, and I think a lot of women in the climate movement and who've been working in the environmental field, to have these two women who we love so dearly, who have been an inspiration to women all over the world, and to everyone, not just women, but, you know, in this case, to uh, this delegation of women was incredibly inspiring. And um, they come from different perspectives, and the way that they played off of each other's conversation was, um, you know, almost felt like sitting in, in a historical moment, bringing these women together, one from the global north, one from the global south. And, of course, that was a big theme that we worked very hard on, is that we wanted to ensure that there was equal representation from the global south and from the global north and that we could have a really cross-sector conversation so women in the global north are aware of how our lifestyle is affecting women in the global south. And um, you know, to hear from indigenous grassroots leaders from the Amazon forest and from um, the Congo was absolutely key. And this, you know, came out in the conversation with um, Dr. Vonda Nashiva and Dr. Jane Goodall, and they sort of gave us a big picture. Uh, one of the topics that came up very strongly is, of course, around agriculture and um, the, the point about women being so key to seed saving, protecting our seeds from GMO seeds, and um, really what women can do in agriculture, a lot of talk about what we can do in our, what women can do in their own hands. And um, I think it was really interesting that um, Vanda Nashiva said, you know, the concrete solutions that are the most radical ones, um, she said the concrete solutions are the most radical ones. And uh, she made this wonderful comment about that we need to bring climate action down from the stratosphere, that the abstract has really had its day. And how we can put our hands on solutions was a big point that uh, she made. Um, and uh, one of the things that um, Dr. Jane Goodall uh, mentioned is really hoping and praying that women can come together and heal the disconnect between the head and the heart. You know, kind of as we were saying earlier mm-hmm. um, a few minutes ago on the show here, is, you know, how to engage our heart more. And we need to create a world where there are, uh, Jane Goodall said, two equal wings between women and men. And we must find the roles uh, for our boys as well as for our girls in restoring the earth. It was a very, very inspiring conversation, um, and of course, a lot of science was discussed by both of them around uh, what's going on with the climate itself. And uh, fortunately for everyone listening, um, we did live stream the entire event, so the archives um, are on our uh, linked on our website. Um, IWECI.org, so people can go back and enjoy these for many years to come, the conversation between these women and a lot of the panels that were there. And um, So 
uh, both of them just expressed enormous support for the summit and uh, women's leadership and, and empowerment around climate change. And then the evening ended with um, uh, we had the great honor that they both signed our declaration statement because the declaration statement was something that uh, for many months before the summit, we had all our delegates work on online and emailing back and forth because we had all decided we didn't want to spend, you know, the great portion of our time together, such precious time with women around the world working mm-hmm. on a, a, a statement. So we worked on it actually before we got to the summit and got input from all of our delegates. And so it was ready and prepared that night for um, Dr. Von Inishiv and Dr. Jane Goodall to sign. So our first signers were those two women, and it was extraordinary. Mm-hmm. And um, lastly, I'll say that the um, we are very, very thankful that Amy Goodman from Democracy Now! was the person who interviewed them. And, of course, she is spectacular and a leader in her own right. So the question was uh, – the the, um, the uh, conversation was just absolutely rich and deep, and um, I, I think everyone walked away very, very inspired. Well, and, and I was watching some of the, the coverage uh, that's now archived on your YouTube channel. And so for folks who want to check that out, that is available. And it's, it's amazing. It's really, it's really, really cool. I'd like for you to go into more detail on the Women's Declaration Statement because um, I ha- now have that printed out and pinned up on my bulletin board as an inspiration for me and my work. Um, talk to us about some of the, some of the, ideas and concepts in that wonderful document. Um, yes, and, and, and for people to know, um, today or on Monday, we're going to be uh, posting that. It is already on our website, but we're mm-hmm. going to post it in the form where now that the delegates have signed it, we're now going to be sharing that with the world, and women and men alike are very welcome to sign it. And we're going to be starting a large sign-on campaign for that through all the different networks of women who attended the summit, which oh, we cool. learned our combined constituencies of men and women from the organizations that were there were 33 million people. Wow. So, yeah, so we're really hoping to do some big outreach because a part of this is, you know, movement building. Um, we know we have the solutions that we need. You know, we have the technologies that we need, and we've all been talking about it, but it's really moving uh, the political and collective will dial that we're really interested in now, and we think women can make a huge difference in their constituencies, and that's what we're aiming to do. And this declaration statement is really an organizing tool for that. So we really encourage people to go online, um, either it'll be later today or Monday, and it'll, then it will be the possibility for everyone to go ahead and sign that on our on our website. But um, it was a very exciting document to put together, and I'll just highlight a few things. Um, you know, we're we're really making the point about urgency and how climate change is threatening all life as we know it. And we really need to stand up together for our children and grandchildren and all living things and all natural systems um, of our earth and how they're really in jeopardy right now. Um, you know, uh, we already know that global temperatures of a rise of 1.5, maybe even 2 degrees, is, is potentially locked into the atmosphere from the greenhouse gases emitted to date. And we don't, we know that the world at this point is on course towards a likely 4 degree uh, rise in temperature, and that we have to move at speed and scale. Something much more um, urgent needs to happen, that governments are not responding at the level that nature is clearly demonstrating to us with these extreme weather events. 
and we, we've really got to shake ourselves up. And so some of the things that we've discussed in terms of actions in the declaration statement are investing in an energy revolution. And we're using words like revolution with massive and swift expansion of conservation, energy efficiency, and safe and renewable energy by implementing radically increased efficiency standards, generating 100% of all new electricity from renewables. And we had a wonderful panel that people can, again, watch online through YouTube on a panel about those transitions and how to really demand 100% renewables, um, incentivizing conservation and reduction of consumption, especially in the global north. Um, we're looking at recognizing that the transition to renewable energy does not justify or require a massive increase in mega hydro dams, biofuels, and major monoculture biomass plantations that cause displacement of people, food insecurity, and human rights abuses and deforestation. So when we're going ahead and, and talking about these demands and wanting to make these transitions, again, this rights-based approach comes in where we're caring for human rights you know, it needs to be with a, um, a justice perspective. It can't just be, you know, a, um, a business perspective or a market perspective that we're really, really looking at, you know, having a climate justice perspective on solutions. Um, mm-hmm. We're really rejecting greenhouse gas emission reduction schemes that come from high-risk technologies that create irreversible damage to human and planetary health, including the tar sands up in Canada, shale gas, nuclear energy, and geoengineering. So what I really like about this declaration statement and um, then the Women's Climate Action Agenda that we're working on that goes into even more detail is that we need to be also really address false solutions and get into a much deeper analysis about what needs to happen but how it needs to happen and that we really need to embrace and implement common but differentiated responsibilities to solve the climate crisis so that, you know, it is fair between the global north and the global south. So those are just some things that I'm highlighting. It, um, people are welcome to read it. It's online right now. And by Monday, you know, later today or by Monday, you can actually sign it as well. One of the things that I really appreciated about it, I mean, besides the fact that it is so specific, which is so helpful, sometimes declaration statements that I've seen from other organizations are a bit vague. This is very specific, and I think that's helpful. But towards the end of it, it also says that we'll be resolved to take individual action on a daily basis to avert climate chaos and to implement solutions at all levels. I like the infusion of individual action because sometimes everything is, I'm going to push for the government to do this. I'm going to push for corporations to do this. I'm going to write letters. I'm going to protest. I'm going to do all these things to, you know, persuade outside entities to do things, which is important. But sometimes organizations neglect that ever important piece of individual action and responsibility. And I love it that it was included in this declaration because that not only, you know, helps us remember the collective impact of our individual actions, but also helps each person who has signed on and really adheres to this declaration to have kind of a testimony. Here's what I'm doing in my life. And here's why, you know, I'm concerned and how it's changed my own behavior. And it gives you a little bit more credibility when you're going out there and trying to get others involved. And I'm really happy that you guys included that. Um, You know, I'm sure that was intentional. I'm so glad you brought that up. And that's absolutely the case. And in fact, the section where we go into the specific details um, we actually wrote, we, the undersigned, call on ourselves, our governments, and all communities too. And then it goes into the specifics. So you're absolutely right. You know, we didn't say, like, we want our governments to do this. We said, you know what? 
we have different entry points about how we need to do it. Governments need to do this part, but we need to do this part. Communities can do this part. And it's true, we're all responsible. Um, so I really am glad that you pointed that out. And I think it's, it is really important that um, we all see that we're, while we're making demands that we also need to look at our own daily lives. Absolutely. You know, uh, we're going to take a quick commercial break in just a moment here. But before we do, uh, tell us again uh, the website so that people maybe during the commercial break can open a new tab in their web browser and check out some of the information that we're talking about. Sure. It's www.iwec.org. Perfect. Well, folks, you can check that out. Don't close this tab in your web browser. Keep listening to us on Voice America. But if you want to check out some of the things that uh, Osprey and I are discussing, go to that website, and uh, we're going to have a lot more Go Green Radio right after this quick commercial break. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Each week, Jimmy Gould brings you the stories and the people that you want to hear about. Tune in to A Current Life to hear about the journey to success, how our guests became the people they are today, and the highs and lows they experienced along the way. Each hour will leave you inspired and entertained as Jimmy gets up close and personal with every week's guest and shares ideas you can identify with and apply to your own life. A Current Life with Jimmy Gould airs Fridays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. If you happen to just be tuning in, our guest today is Osprey Oriel Lake. She's the co-founder and co-director of the International Women's Earth and Climate Initiative, and they have just this week finished their very first summit. And Osprey, I would love for you to tell us about some of the women who served as delegates to the summit and some of the constituencies that they represent. It was such a diverse and eclectic group. Yes, I mean, it was one of the things, I mean, actually, when I first had envisioned 
this summit uh, several years ago, for me, there was a real goal to have Indigenous women and grassroots women voices together with policymakers and business women. And so um, that it was a huge effort, really, to bring a lot of these women from the Global South together with the women of the Global North, but it was it's just stunning to see the kind of conversations that went on, and um, we were really thrilled with the delegates participating, including um, you know some of the high policy uh, level women like Christiana Figueres, who's the executive secretary to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, uh, Marina Silva, who's the former Brazilian Minister of Environment, Mary Robinson, the former Irish President, um, Nobel Peace Laureate Jody Williams, who was amazing, marine biologist Sylvia Earle, May Bovey from 350.org, the executive director there, um, as we talked about earlier, Vanda Nishiva um, and Dr. Jane Goodall. Um, we had Naomi Klein come and Skype in for us. Some of the constituencies were the Global Gender Climate Alliance, uh, the Women's Environment and Development Organization, um, the NAACP. Um, we had a wonderful woman there um, um, who came in uh, uh, to Jacqueline Patterson, who came in from their organization. So uh, it was really interesting to see so many different women on this topic, coming from different entry points, but in common cause. And um, also we had Melina Labakamasimo, who's a member of the Cree First Nations people um, in Canada. She's a climate and energy campaigner from Greenpeace. She's a longtime Indigenous environmental activist, very powerful speaking to us about um, her people, her land, and um, how they're really fighting uh, the impacts of the tar sands um, on her, her First Nations people and what's happening to their culture and land. I think it's really important that we hear from these uh, impacted communities who are living on the front lines of, of these areas of um, extraction due to, to um, the oil industry. I think it was really important to hear her story. Um, she was also um, interviewed by um, Amy Goodman along with Zipporah Borman, another incredible activist from Canada who's working on the tar sands. They were on Democracy Now!, and that can be viewed coming, you know, right out of the summit. That's online now. Um, Catherine Lucy is the uh, founder of an organization called Solar Sister. It's an innovative social enterprise that is creating a green energy revolution in Africa, uh, powered by by women's leadership. And they combined uh, the breakthrough potential of solar lighting and energy with a women-centered direct sales network, so women can you know sell these um, solar lights and you know go to clean energy technologies right away while also start starting small businesses, which is really important because it really addresses both the social aspect and the uh, technical aspect of uh, working with clean energy. Um, another incredible woman is Natalie Isaacs. She's the found, co-founder of One Million Women in Australia. And um, it's an incredible campaign that they're wanting to bring to the U.S. And we're actually in conversation about being partners with them on this. And um, what this is, is it's a um, in Australia, they have 80,000 women participating in a campaign taking practical action to reduce waste and pollution in their daily lives. As we were talking about earlier on the show, you know, what can I do? So it's a whole way online that you can learn how to work your, with your household energy, food, fashion, shopping, transport, and travel, and exactly how you can make Reductions, um, and it's really taken off uh, very powerfully in in uh, Australia, and we're looking to support them doing it here in the U.S. That's so um, I'll just mention one more: uh, Colleen Ross, um, who is one of the uh, a leader for uh, she's a farmer 
and um, she uh, is working very strongly with um, as an active representat- representative from La Via Campesina, which is um, uh, doing incredible work with the exploitation of farmers and uh, really working to protect them for uh, against um, you know how they can protect exploitation against seed contracts, trade agreements, and uh, she. Uh, represents an organization of 200 million uh, farmers around the world. So it's quite quite an amazing host of women. And again, I was mentioning Nima Namandu before. She's a leader from uh, the Congo forests um, in Africa, how to protect the forests there. Uh, uh, leaders um, from uh, Ecuador, uh, Patricia um, Montalvo, who's an indigenous leader from the Seriaco tribe, really speaking out about how to protect their, for- their forests from oil extraction. So it was um, a banquet of the most delicious uh, uh, mm-hmm. women you can imagine. That that is incredible. I mean, the the fact that you were able to bring them all together is is just an amazing amazing feat. Um, congratulations! You know, I was watching some of the coverage, and I was also marveling at the eight working groups that you divided everyone into to really dig in deep to the most pressing issues. And I want to share with our listeners what those eight working groups uh, were entitled, and then I'd like for you to talk about them. Uh, the first working group covered renewable energy, efficiency, green business, cities, lifestyles, and eco-villages. The second working group covered forests, seeds, food, agriculture, and biodiversity. The third working group covered freshwater, oceans, climate science. The fourth working group covered the rights of nature, indigenous peoples, and an earth community economy. The next working group covered stories, media, and messaging, communicating climate change solutions and a new cultural narrative. The next working group was um, entitled Organizing Women in the Climate Movement, and it covered women and climate policy and women's rights. The seventh working group covered tar sands, pipelines, fracking, fossil fuel resistance, and fossil fuel divestment. And finally, the eighth working group covered climate finance, carbon fees, and financial transaction taxes. And I'd love for you to talk us through those eight working groups and and make any comments that you'd like for our listeners to hear. Sure, sure. I mean, um, you know, we spent a lot of time before the summit really looking at a progressive agenda that we felt would meet the urgency of the climate crisis, and that's how we came up with the eight working groups in areas that we felt would have the most traction, um, having done our own research and then counseling with our steering committee and advisory council. And um, so what, what, how the working groups operated is that um, three times during the summit, uh, the women broke into working groups and delved into these topics very deeply, um, you know, in these different issue areas. And then, of course, the panel conversations that went on um, during the other times in the summit also contributed to this process. And the idea um, was, and we're still working on it, is to form together with all the different expertise in the room because, you know, as we were talking about these different women, you can hear the level of expertise and the constituencies that these women represent to go into these eight uh, areas and and pull forth, you know, what are the most immediate actions that we need to take in each of these issue areas of the eight working groups. And so that's what the Women's Climate Action Agenda is. And then on the final day, we really went through and uh, each of the eight working groups 
brought forth, you know, what were the most important topics, both in terms of policy, but also on-the-ground solutions. And, you know, from doing this work for a while, I've really seen that it's very important to do sort of a sandwich effect, if you will, where you have uh, what are the policy changes that we need that um, are is one part of the solution, but also on-the-ground project campaigns are equally important. You know, what's happening at the grassroots level, what's on the ground going on. So we asked the delegates to flesh out for us um, in each of the eight working groups um, three major policies that they want to see changed in their issue area as well as three on-the-ground solutions so we could distill uh, something that we have, all of us can use, as an action plan going forward because the whole idea is action, action, action at this point. You know, we didn't want to do the Talking Heads conference. It's really got to change now into what are we going to do. So um, right now we have a draft of the Women's Climate Action Agenda and um, we're seeing in the next, we're thinking it'll take us certainly before the end of the year. We want to get that out because, of course, we need to edit it. We need to go back and forth with the delegates to refine the document. And then we want to take it to heads of state. We want to take it to local community organizers. We want to take it to NGOs. We want to take it to grassroots and indigenous communities and say, you know, this is what, you know, we came up with. I'm sure it will change, you know, over the course of time of getting feedback. But we are looking and seeing, you know, what's coming out of the United Climate Negotiations, what governments are suggesting, are simply not going to cut it. It's not meeting what science and nature is telling us. So therefore, we want this action agenda to go into a lot of detail about where the traction areas are and where we're going to get the most impact in all of the areas that that are listed here from renewable energy to forests to water to women's rights, to um, these extractive energies, to the uh, finance piece. So if you look at the eight working groups, it really provides a holistic approach um, to this very complex issue of climate change, and that's why we felt we really need to come at it at different angles. And the last thing I'll say about this is on our website, we have an online solutions forum that built up to the summit that are um, divided into these eight working groups. So we went into the summit with a lot of good ideas and solutions that people had already been working on. And we're going to keep that online solutions forum operating. It's, it's a part of our website that's an ongoing dialogue. It's very exciting because you can see all these different ideas that people are having and then people cross-pollinate ideas and realize, oh, this issue area connects to that issue area and how can we work together? So the other thing we wanted to do by bringing all these ideas together from these different eight entry points is to show areas of collaboration because we know no one country, no organization can do this on our own. We have to work together. And so part of this holistic approach is showing an ecosystem of ideas and how they can connect to one another. I, I love the collaborative model that you've set up. But another thing that I really appreciate about the way that you set this up is that you have people who understand very well what's already happening and how the existing systems already work. Sometimes in activist communities, there's a very clear idea of how they want the world to be, but not as clear an understanding of how the world is. And if you don't understand how, you know, the policy and government regulation and all these things work together, um, 
in the existing current format, it's very difficult to create stepping stones from that place to the place where you want the world to be. And so I think what's really great about your configuration is it's very clear-eyed and it has a lot of expertise on what is as well as expertise on what could be. And I think that's really exciting. We're going to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we're going to talk about a panel that Osprey herself moderated, and I think you're going to really enjoy hearing about uh, what came out of that panel. So don't go away, folks. There's much more Go Green Radio right after this. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. Thrilled that you could all join us and listen in today. Our guest today, if you happen to just be tuning in, is Osprey Oriel Lake, co-founder and co-director of the International Women's Earth and Climate Initiative. And I'd like for everybody to check out their website at www.iweci.org. Lots of great information about the organization itself, but also some terrific information on the summit that was just held. And in fact, At that summit, Osprey, you moderated a panel that sounds fascinating. It was called How We Live, The Rights of Nature, Community Rights, Earth Community Economy, Our Relationship to the Earth. Talk to us about the insights that were shared during that panel. Yeah, it was, it was very, very exciting to be on that panel because, you know, of course part of the conversation that we all had at the summit is about um, how we need to change our relationship to nature. I mean, we're all really clear that we're not living in balance with the natural laws of the earth. 
So we talked about that, you know, from the cultural narratives perspective, but also from the perspective of uh, our legal situation, our governance structures with nature. And I just wanted to mention I was uh, on that panel with Shannon Biggs of Global Exchange, Natalia Green, um, who's from Ecuador, from Fundacion Pachamama, and also with Patricia Montalvo, who's an indigenous leader from the Sierra Eco tribe from Ecuador. So I was with, you know, an amazing group of women. And I, I think um, one of the most critical areas of work that we can focus on is the rights of nature or the rights of Mother Earth. And just to give a little bit of background around that, um, you know, around the world and in almost all non-Indigenous systems of law, nature and ecosystems are treated merely as property. Our life-giving rivers, forests, and mountains are treated as property, which then can be sold and consumed, and they're often protected under commerce laws. Mm-hmm. And as only property, these natural communities and ecosystems are then not recognized as rights holders. So in our legal systems, because nature is property, it really is invisible to courts, which is very problematic as we've seen over, you know, the years. So, um, what I think is really encouraging right now and brings a lot of promise is that for the past three decades, environmental lawyers and visionary thinkers around the globe have been developing a new theory of jurisprudence to change that system, which is what we're calling the rights of nature approach, which promotes a structure of law that recognizes that our living planet has its own rights. Um, if a rights of nature legal framework were implemented as an example, activities that harm the ability of ecosystems and natural communities to thrive and naturally restore themselves, they would be um, legally in violation of nature's rights. So I think this is something that really excites me is that it has legal strength and it can give communities the ability to decide what happens in their own communities, as an example with fracking. Um, the Rights of Mother Earth framework recognizes the inherent meaning and sacredness and the value of nat- the natural world, that it's not tradable or subject to commerce. It really pulls nature out of the property framework. And, of course, indigenous communities have been demonstrating this worldview for thousands of years. And to this end, I think to truly protect our earth, we have to stop the commodification and financialization of nature. You know, some of these schemes that are coming out of the um, international community on climate negotiations keeps trying to put nature into ecosystem services and putting a price tag on nature. And it's the marketplace that's actually destroying nature. And I don't think that's how we're going to resolve the issue of healing our relationship with nature. Um, and, the, and the last piece I'd like to just share about this, because it, it's just such interesting work, is that... Um, Actually, um, uh, people are saying, well, can this work? And we say yes, because in 2008, Ecuador became the first country in the world to recognize the rights of nature in its constitution. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were very fortunate to have Natalia Green from Ecuador, who worked, um, was one of the people who helped make that happen in Ecuador. So, you know, we already see at a national level, a government has taken that on as part of their constitution. Additionally, Bolivia established 11 new rights of nature laws after they hosted the World's People Conference on Climate Change and Rights of Mother Earth in April 2010, which also produced a really key document to this work, which is the Universal Declaration of the Rights of Mother Earth. And then before these national developments in Ecuador and Bolivia, a really important shift had already taken place um, in 2006 
in the rural U.S. community of Tamaqua Borough, Pennsylvania, when the community, with the assistance of the Community Environmental Legal Defense Fund, which is a really important organization to this work, um, they passed an ordinance recognizing nature as a rights-bearing entity. And since then, dozens of communities in the United States have passed local ordinances which recognize rights of nature to protect their ecosystems. And one I'll just mention here um, is very exciting that Moore County in New Mexico is New Mexico is the first county in the United States to ban fracking, which effectively prevents oil and gas development in that area. So we're seeing at the community level here in the U.S., not at the national level, but at the community level, people really using this to protect uh, where they live. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think that goes hand in hand with the rights of future generations as well. I mean, um, I think some of the same uh, legal frameworks that could be accomplished by by recognizing the rights of nature could also be accomplished by looking at the rights of future generations as well. Um, and so I think that that approach, that multifaceted rights approach, again, as we mentioned in the first segment, it, it does create a very powerful uh, opportunity for, for a different structure when it comes to our legal system. I think that's really exciting. You know, the summit introduced a lot of different ways for people to get involved online. You use technology well. I'd like for you to talk about that a little bit and also talk about how the summit, you know, in a way it, it hasn't ended. There's, there's much more to be done and more work that's going to be accomplished and how you're going to be using technology to, to keep the momentum going. Yes, I mean, it was one of the things that we really thought about going into the summit is that while we had approximately 100 delegates in the room and guests, that we wanted the world to be able to participate. So we live-streamed the entire event, and it was interactive in the sense that people could send in questions that we then brought to the plenary floor so people could participate um, with the delegates. Um, and so, you know, as we talked about, people can now view all of these different panels and conversations um, on YouTube. And I think that's very exciting because I think we'll actually have a lot more viewers over the coming months seeing, you know, what happened and continuing to give us feedback, which will be, you know, something we really welcome. Um, the other thing is that um, we really see the summit as the beginning, not the end. I mean, it was a lot of work to get to the summit. And, mm-hmm. and at the same time, it's actually the beginning of bringing about a women's global action movement. That's what we're very interested in. And men are very, very much involved with our work. We have men on our advisory council. Uh, it's really about women's leadership and lifting up women's empowerment. Um, right now, that's what we're looking at. But there are many men involved in our organization, men who are signing our declaration statement, uh, men who are helping, you know, to help promote our work and understand that um, this is an important thing, as in all movements that women have led, that men also support us and understand this approach and why women's leadership is important. So we welcome that as well. Um, the uh, women's uh, declaration statement uh, is online, and uh, on you know today or Monday, as I was mentioning, people can begin to sign it. They can help us disseminate that uh, declaration. The more signatures we have, of course, the more impact it will have. Um, um, I most likely will be going to the UN climate negotiations in uh, Warsaw, Poland, coming up in November, and bringing the declaration statement there, and also refining refining our women's climate action agenda. A lot of colleagues will be there. We'll be continuing to work on that. That will also go online, you know, be, by the end of the year, so that 
again, we can be disseminating this culmination of all of this work out to governments, out to grassroots organizations, out to local communities and national organizations worldwide. So we can all take a look at this and say, wow, here's an agenda that could really get this job done and solve the climate crisis. And that's what we need to do also is have a plan that we really can get behind that has um, the, the, the outline of how to get from here to there to having sustainable communities and having the future we really want. Um, ongoingly, we have our online solutions forum, and we welcome everyone, women and men alike, to post there so we can keep learning about what people are doing around the world. I'm so inspired by the remarkable uh, on-the-ground work that people are doing and uh, policy solutions people have in mind. So that's something that will go ongoing as well. So there's a lot of work that actually is just getting started because of the summit, and Mm -hmm. um, we will continue to be reaching out. People can sign up for our newsletter on our website to keep in touch with us so they can hear what we're going to be doing next. And so we're very excited about, you know, the end of the year as well as going into uh, 2014 with um, a lot of action plans. And I think the last thing I'll say is um, a lot of the women delegates we're excited about also are interested in direct action. So we're going to be planning some days of action coming up next year. And of course, everyone can participate in those as well. Fantastic. Congratulations, Osprey. And everybody get out on that website and get involved. It's www.iweci.org. Folks, that does it for us today, but we'll be back same time, same place next week with more Go Green Radio. Until then, have a wonderful week and do something in your life to go green. Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.